Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the Beyond the Mic star line by Philip Mudd, author of the book, Black Sight, the CIA in the post 9-11 world. Philip, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Let's go beyond the mic. Did you always want to be a CIA officer growing up? No. First, I wanted to be a baseball player, but I was horrible. I sat on the bench in high school, and then I wanted to be a teacher, so I got a master's degree in literature, and that didn't work. So, like everybody who can't get a job, I went to the federal government, and they gave me a job in 1985. (laughs) (laughs) What made the CIA and the FBI such an intriguing opportunity? I think there are a couple of things. First, you know, the work intrinsically is interesting, whether you're doing what I did, which is counterterrorism, or a lot of my college colleagues were working back then on the Soviet Union or working on China, working on issues like uh, international drug trafficking. Those jobs are pretty compelling. But also, I got to say that the federal government, I think this is still true where I was at the Bureau and the CI recruits just great people. So the peers I was there with when I was 25 and 30, 35 years old, they were really talented and interesting. That made it a lot of fun. When you joined the agency in 85, you were an analyst for South Asia and the Middle East. What made that so fascinating for you? There are a couple things. First, um, just learning the intelligence business. You know, the first time I remember reading Intercepted Communications, I'm like, this is too cool. I didn't realize I would get to do this. I was pretty naive going in, I guess. And then looking at intractable problems like the, the dispute between India and Pakistan and going on and through the 90s, starting in the early 90s, I started to look at the phenomenon of terrorism. It was sort of a backwater at the agency then, uh, but in the mid-90s, this guy named Osama bin Laden appeared on the scene. And uh, we didn't know a lot about him, but I tell you, especially given the tragedy of 9-11, it was, in retrospect, pretty interesting. In retrospect, where were you on 9-11? I was at the executive office building, the White House, which is sort of the um, annex to um, the White House. It looks like a wedding cake right and right next to the West Wing. So uh, I remember the second plane going in. We were evacuated. and Boy, none of us knew what was going on. I was on the streets of Washington, D.C., right outside the White House, and it was like a Hollywood movie set. It was just chaos. People thought that there was an attack on the State Department. It was just just chaos. I'll never forget that day. How do you feel about the lack of intelligence, the full intelligence about Al-Qaeda, how that affected the CIA at that time? I think a lot of people, myself included, look back with sadness and frustration. I mean, there's only so much you can do when an organization takes over, essentially, part of a country, and, and you don't conduct raids because those are so risky. You're putting all the servicemen and women at risk. You don't conduct um, operations to kill for, uh, terrorist leadership before 9-11 because that scene is, is too risky. And then you look back over time and say, boy, I wonder if the government and the American people had been more willing to take risks. And I, I'm not being critical. I'm just looking back with kind of pain, I guess. I wonder if history would have been different. I, I don't think so. I think it took a global coalition of, of countries you know, a decade to really put a huge dent into Al-Qaeda, and I'm not sure how you would do that without the tragedy of 9-11. As you wrote this book, you try to get the reader to understand the position, the hard position the CIA was in after 9-11. You examine the difficulty of facing an opponent we'd never faced before. Yeah, that, that's sort of why I wanted to get into this. I talked to maybe three dozen of my peers who, who would not talk to the media, they didn't want to write books. I wanted not only to tell the story of the CIA detention program, which had never really been told in this way before, but to give readers a sense of what the world looked like through the lens of my peers, a lot of whom were, were friends, and they, they were pretty open with me. I think people forget that back in 01, 02, 03, we didn't know that much about al-Qaeda, and, and I actually thought we were losing. I thought they had the upper hand, and that I wasn't sure 
that we would be able to turn the tide. Back in about 04, 05, I started to think we were winning. But the early days, we didn't know much. And I, I thought we were in a lot of trouble. How frustrating was it to be in a situation of not having information when the Central Intelligence Agency is all about information? I think it was frustrating. But more than that, it was it, it was saddening. I remember driving home every night and back to the newspapers in those early Weeks and months after 9-11, we're, we're doing features and stories with photographs of faces of the fallen and families that had lost um, parents, typically, or in some cases, parents who had lost children. Uh, you know, I talked to one mother who had the last recording of her son calling from one of the towers. and Of course, he never came home. Just the sense that in, there, were, there was an organization that thought that the murder of almost 3,000 innocents was was not only acceptable, but when we started capturing al-Qaeda detainees, they were quite proud of this. Just I, I, more than frustration, a sense of sadness that this is what we had to deal with. And, and, and in that sense, also a sense of mission. You had to do it. There was no option. What pressure did you feel as Deputy Director of the CIA Counterterrorist Center and FBI National Security Branch? I don't think that's the word I would use. You know, when you look at plots breaking every day, uh, plots within al-Qaeda, plots in American cities going back to you know, the, the early days of the post 9-11 era, you sit there and say, you know, eventually some of these are going to score. You can't play, you, you can't have dozens or hundreds of plots over the course of years and not have some people, uh, some foreign plotters get through the American net. So I think more the sense of an inevitability and, and a wonder, my, the big question I had, and I think my peers had this as, as well, something they talked about for the book was the sense of whether there would be another uh, second big one and a second 9-11 that might include anthrax. That concern about a second wave, not a small attack, but another catastrophic attack, was really the thing that, that worried a lot of people like me. Not something small, but something else where the American people would say, I can't believe you let this happen again. We're joined beyond the mic by the author of the book, Black Sight, the CIA in the post-9-11 world, Philip Mudd. In your book, you write, quote, at that time, before the attacks, there was no consideration of any enhanced interrogations, none, unquote. Are the CIA and FBI now in a position where they've learned from rushing into creation of this program, or does the fear of preventing another attack such as 9-11 continue to weigh on them? I think both. I mean, if you're sitting in a counterterrorism position, you've got to be concerned every day that you're going to miss one. But, but the sense, and I hear this in the American public once in a while, less often than I used to, the sense that maybe the CIA or the U.S. government or the president would authorize a program like the program I laid out in the book, the, the, the interrogation program. I can't imagine that ever happening in my lifetime. It's not because people in my generation regret what happened. That is the interrogation program. It's because people learned that, that, that the Congress and the American people didn't have stomach for this for long. And uh, the speed with which the Congress and others backtracked on, on the support for the interrogation program in 2002 and beyond was surprising. So I think my peer generation would say, whether the American people want it or not, we're not doing that again. It's not going to happen. How do the fears of the black sites going public change the way the CIA operated? Well, there are some tactical issues back when the black sites were being created. One was, you know, how, much, how do you have backup sites so that if a site gets blown, you can, you can move prisoners someplace. But there was a bigger question that, that people called, and I outlined in how I wrote in the interviews I did, that people called Endgame. Very early on, you're talking as soon as 0203, a lot of the managers of, of the secret prisoners we had said, we, we can't keep these guys forever. We're here to interrogate them and learn about what intelligence they have, but we're not jailers. And so this 
sense that this information about black sites was going to become public, that you couldn't keep the location secret forever, drove conversations at CIA and the White House for people to say, what the heck are we going to do with these prisoners? That was finally resolved near the end of the George Bush administration when he said, not only do we have prisoners, but we're transferring them to, to Guantanamo. And that's where some of them still live today. You write in your book, Black Sight, from one of the officers witnessing the enhanced interrogations, quote, you would think that we would sit down afterwards as a group to talk about the interrogation, but we all went our separate ways on the facility afterwards, unquote. Would you say those fateful decisions ever haunted those who gave the orders? I would not say haunted. I talked to my colleagues about that when I, when I did all the interviews, and I think the question was, what's, what better option do we have? It's like you get a pair of deuces and somebody says, you're playing against somebody with a full house. What are you going to do? I think there was a sense of the seriousness of what was going on. That's why the CIA spent so much time documenting what was happening legally to ensure people understood they were complying with the law. But in terms of haunting, I'd say no, just because people anticipated the second wave of attacks, as I mentioned. I think the second wave of attacks would have happened if America had not responded so aggressively, including the the military and intelligence intervention in Afghanistan. People look back and say, if we hadn't been so aggressive, maybe al-Qaeda would have succeeded and nobody would be talking about this anymore. They'd be saying, how could you let that happen a second time? How does the lessons learned and or the mistakes made during the creation of the black sites helped or hurt the CIA as it exists today? I think... Uh, in terms of the, the program, the interrogation program itself, it matured pretty quickly over time. The initial stages, as, as I talk about, were pretty rough because this was a business the CIA had never been involved in. They went in quickly and made mistakes. Lawyers, specialists got involved in over time crafting policies, procedures, excuse me, how the black site facilities were actually managed. In terms of today, I'm not sure I'd say it, it hurt the CIA. I think my peer generation would be clear not only in saying we're not going to do that again because of the judgments people had about us afterwards in the rearview mirror, but also when you get involved in a program of this sensitivity, we didn't document as much as we should, especially interactions with the Congress. I think people of my generation would say anytime you get involved with the Congress and the White House, write down every word they say, because sometime down the road, if things get ugly, they're going to say, we didn't really know. It's not a great perspective, but it's what I remember getting burned by the Congress and saying, I ain't never going to let that happen again. Black Sight, the CIA in the post 9-11 world is the book. Philip Mudd is the author, and he joins us beyond the mic. You wrote, quote, the CIA prides itself on ingenuity, agility, and general will and capability to turn on a dime to accomplish a mission, unquote. Has the reflections of the creation of the Black Sites changed the way you perceive the CIA? Not really. I mean, the CIA has big upsides in what I learned from the FBI ways of operating that are <laughs> that cause some problems. The upside, and I think that still exists, although I'm, I'm guessing it's, it's different than it was 17 years ago. The upside is agility. People will say, look, what do you want us to do? We'll do it. We're supposed to do stuff secret. We're supposed to do stuff that other agencies don't want to do, and we do it fast. And the downside of that is in terms of, especially in contrast to the FBI, where I spent four and a half years, the downside is, People are moved so quickly. Policies and procedures aren't always as airtight as they might be. There's a lot of risk in running spy operations overseas, so eventually they're going to blow up in your face. A lot of them will. A lot of what we did ended up on the front page of newspapers. 
But I think that agility and aggressiveness is something the CIA is rightfully proud of. And I, I, I know some of the people who are still there. I, I suspect they're still proud of being that way. Well, time's running out, so it's time for the Rocky Nate. First thing that comes to your mind, no pressure. Hobby you do when you're not working. Cooking. Place in the world you'd like to visit on vacation. Uh, mountains of North Carolina. Last book that you read. Uh, the Patriarch by David Nassau. What was the last Villanova sporting event you went to? Villanova basketball, big five. Last board game you played? Ooh, uh, man, dominoes. Music you like to listen to when you're writing? Uh, classical or jazz. If you could change one mistake or change one thing from your life, what would it be? Uh, being more polite when I was younger. And if you could reassure the citizens of the USA about one thing, what would it be? Uh, you're safer than you think if you worry about terrorism. When he was young, he wanted to be a baseball player. Wants to vacation in the mountains of North Carolina and just wants people to know some of the tough decisions made every day at the CIA. It's author Philip Mudd. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me and making me think. I appreciate it. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic. 